So we're just now getting out of the first 18 verses of John's gospel, which John has said things in that text that are really mind-blowing. If, you're, if you've read them over and over again and you're used to them, we want to not be used to them because it, the truths they communicate are awesomely powerful and they're great. So what has John said so far about Jesus in the first 18 verses? Well, he said Jesus was the Word who was in the beginning with God and who also was God. So how do you do that? How do you be in the beginning with somebody and be that person at the same time? Amazing. All things were made through him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. When he came into the world as the light, the world didn't know him, and his own people didn't receive him. But to everyone who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Becoming God's child could not come by any human relations, but only by being born of God, he said. So he came so that people could become children of God, and the only way they could do that was to be birthed by God to become his child. In the midst of these incredible truths about Jesus Christ, we were told that there was a man sent from God who had a special assignment that was to make him known to Israel. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, he said, to identify Jesus as Messiah. John, the author, introduces the witness John the Baptist or baptizer. He never calls him John the Baptist in this, in this whole gospel. Other, other gospel writers call him John the Baptist. John never names himself, but to hopefully reduce confusion or maybe to make it more confusing, I don't know which, I'm going to be saying John the author and John the baptizer, just so you'll know who I'm talking about. We'll see how that works. So in verse 19, we had, this is the testimony of John, who's the Baptist, the baptizer, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And uh, one thing I should have mentioned is that the main idea of this whole text, you'll see it again at the end, so if you don't catch it now, God sends witnesses so people may receive Jesus as the one who takes away sin and saves by the Spirit. God sends witnesses so people may receive Jesus as the one who takes away sin and saves by the Spirit. That's the whole main idea of this text. We'll hit that again at the end so you can capture it. You're not going to get it all now. But um, John, the author, tells us that the Jews sent priests and Levites to find out who this guy is. John uses the term Jews quite often. He doesn't always mean the same exact group. Sometimes he just means all the Jews. Sometimes he's just referring to a certain group. But usually he means those Jews, Jewish leaders in particular, who are opposed to Jesus. Typically that's what he means. So they sent priests and Levites, who were assistants to the priests, to uh, check up on him. Um, he had quite a big following, so naturally the Jewish leaders want to know who he is. He emphatically confesses, I am not the Christ. And he, in, if you see it in the original language, I is emphasized. So he means, I am not the Christ, but there is one among you who is that. He implies that by that. Um, so who is the Christ? Christ is the Greek word for the Jewish Messiah, meaning the anointed one. Uh, the anointed one, the Messiah, was one who was promised in what we call the Old Testament for centuries. They've been li- waiting for this Savior King to come. They expected the Messiah would be a powerful deliverer who would destroy their enemies and, and establish his kingdom with Jerusalem as the capital city, establishing peace and prosperity for Israel. Now, that was not totally right, but it was not totally wrong either. It's partly right. They got it partly right. Um, the, the, the Messianic hopes were running high in these days as they were under Roman domination, so they longed for this Messiah to show up. And so this is a big deal. Is this guy the Messiah? Because look at all the hundreds of people that are coming to see him. And they ask him in verse 21, well, okay then, if you're not the Messiah, if you're not the Christ, are you Elijah? Elijah was another anticipated end-time figure. 
that uh, you read about in Malachi 4 or 5 into the Old Testament. says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the, of the Lord comes. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so that had been about 400 years since that was written. So all, when they see that this person who's very popular, drawing a lot of people, who seems to be a, a strong personality, they think, wow, I wonder if this guy is, is Elijah. And John kind of dressed like Elijah, so he, he had the Elijah look to him. He had camel hair suit and a leather belt, and uh, he snacked on uh, locusts and wild honey. And Elijah was that kind of guy, too. Uh, and also the angel Gabriel, before, when John the Baptist was still in the womb, the angel Gabriel said to his dad, Zechariah, he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So he had kind of a strong Elijah bent to his heritage. But John said, I'm not. I'm not Elijah. And even Jesus, later on in Matthew 11 and 17, and in Mark's Gospels, recorded as forming John as Elijah who was to come. John most likely wasn't aware of this, but why didn't he, why didn't he see himself as Elijah? Why didn't he think, well, yeah, I'm Elijah. Why didn't he claim that? Well, we're not told, but it seems to me that the Messiah was so great in his eyes, and his role as being to point to the Messiah and get out of the way was that's all he was about. I want to point to Jesus, and I want to get out of the way. But he just didn't see himself as being a big end-times figure like that. So he, he turns down the claim to be Elijah. John is so unlike even some Christian celebrities today who are all about themselves. He's not eager to talk about himself. He is eager to talk about Jesus. I love how his answers get shorter the more they try to get answers from him. I'm not the Christ. Well, are you Elijah? I'm not. They ask, are you the prophet? No. So short, short answers. It doesn't make good on CNN or any, any of the news feeds. So who was the prophet? He says, I'm not the prophet. They got this from what Moses had said back in Deuteronomy 18. In verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It's to him you should listen. Then later he records what the Lord says in verse 18. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I'll put my words in his mouth. So he said, I'm not the prophet. Well, they, so they're saying, so who are you then? Who are you? Um, they're getting really exasperated with him. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. Who, what do you say about yourself? So we, we read in Matthew's gospel that Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan are coming out to see him. That's thousands of people, like the Billy Graham of his day. We can't go back to headquarters without some kind of answer as to who you are. So, okay, we've gone through our list of possible people who could draw such crowds. So you tell us, you tell us about yourself. Who are you? And his answer is, I'm a voice. So the chairs all turn around. Voice. He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Yeah. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So for all John's humility and downplaying of himself, he knows he does have a significant role to play, that he sees it in Isaiah, and that's prophesied then, uh, 600 years before. He makes his role significant. What makes his role significant is not his greatness, but the greatness of the one he's, he's pointing people to, the Messiah, the greatness of the one who's in, who he is announcing. In Isaiah's day, Isaiah was calling for God's covenant people, Israel to get ready to return from exile in Babylon. So they got exiled in Babylon. They're getting ready to come back. And he's using the symbolic imagery of straightening the highways, filling in the valleys, flattening out the hills and mountains to prepare them for the return of the exiles. So, like a second exodus. So second exodus, 
They came out of Egypt before, now they're coming out of Babylon. So in all of the last half of Isaiah 40 to 66, the end of the exile starts to, to look like a return to the Lord, far greater than a return to Jerusalem. It looks like it describes a greater redemption brought about by the suffering servant of the Lord. You see it in chapters 52 and 53 of Isaiah, um, which eventually leads to a new heaven and new earth. So Isaiah says, my people are going to come out of Babylon. They're going to come back to me, and eventually I'm going to make everything right, and there's going to be a new heaven and new earth. That's where he goes. So this is a, an amazing claim that he is prefiguring that picture of Israel to, to return to the Lord, Yahweh, that way. Uh, so he's announcing the coming of Messiah Jesus. In other words, Jesus is their Lord, Yahweh. He's announcing the coming of their, their God in the Messiah, Jesus. So John's way of preparing people to receive the Messiah was to call them to repentance. You see that in the other Gospels. He calls them to repentance. So that's the question for us is, what in your life needs to be straightened out or filled up or turned or flattened out for you to come to the Lord Jesus? What's keeping you back from coming to the Lord Jesus? What obstacles are in the way from between you and Jesus? What what obstacles keep you from seeing the greatness of Jesus, from feeling how much you need him, from believing how helpless you are to earn God's favor apart from Jesus? From feeling how much you need him, from believing how helpless you are to be accepted by God through Jesus only? In other words, what do you value more in life than following Jesus? Can you say for me to live as Christ? Or how do you fill in that blank? For me to live is what? What more than Jesus? What's keeping Jesus from having your first love and your loyalty? What's in the way of Jesus being the true Lord of your life, where you love him more than anyone and anything? What's, what's keeping Jesus at arm's length in your life? On Jesus, I, 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 yeah, thanks for saving me, but I, I, I've got my agenda. I've got my things I need to do. I've got people who are more important. Things are more important. This is more important. Well, it says here in verse 24, they had been sent from the Pharisees. Probably better what that means is, I think the NIV translates it this way. Some who, had been, who were sent belonged to the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, they were really not so much the professional religious rulers who would send other priests and Levites. They're more like a lay movement of um, men who were extremely meticulous about observing every minute, minute detail of God's law as they understood it. They were building up a tradition of, around the law, saying, we're going to add to the law to protect the law. And so that added more and more and more rules and, and uh, became very extremely burdensome. So they're always watching and suspicious of Jesus especially. And they keep the people under surveillance and influence them with their propaganda. So in verse 25, they ask him, Then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So why are they concerned about John baptizing? What, what, is their, what, what are they getting at? What are they asking at this point? What's their, what's their problem with his, his baptizing? Well, they're really trying to get at by whose authority are you doing this? Because they also sometimes practice what they call proselyte baptism. Uh, Gentiles who would convert to Judaism would, would baptize themselves and become Jews, as well as there were other kind of monastic groups, kind of monkish, holy order groups, 
who thought we're the end time remnant, we're the faithful ones, we're the ones who are going to be uh, there for God, and so we're the holy people, they would baptize themselves as well. So uh, here's John, not baptizing, people aren't baptizing themselves, he's doing the baptizing. He's got thousands of people coming, so they want to know, what authority do you have that's drawing all these people to you, and why, why are you baptizing in this way? So he tells them, he doesn't answer them the way he wants, the way they wanted, sorry. Um, <clears throat> he, he's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet, why are you baptizing? He says, I baptize with water, and then he gets to the heart of the authority question. John knows he was sent by God to baptize, but baptism is not an end in itself. His baptism was not an end in itself. The purpose of his baptism is to prepare people and point people to the one who is among them who they don't know yet. He's saying, yeah, I'm baptizing with water, but not because of any inherent greatness in me, but because of him who is about to be revealed. So great is this one who you don't know who comes after me in terms of when he will be revealed. He comes after me. He'll be revealed. He comes after me, but I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. So, okay, well, that's, what's the big deal about that? Well, in those days, if you were a disciple of someone, you were to be their servant. You were to do whatever they asked you to do, except the one thing you weren't to do, because it was only done by slaves, is untie their sandal. So uh, I have not yet had the courage to ask anybody here to untie my sandal. But in those days, you just didn't do that. And so he's saying, that's how great this person is. I'm not even worthy to do the slave job of untying a sandal. So amazingly, Jesus will later say about John, of everyone who has ever lived up to that time, there had been no one greater than John the Baptist. Can you, can you believe he'd say that? Not Abraham, not Moses, no prophet, nobody, not King David, nobody is greater than John the Baptist. And here's John saying, I'm not worthy to remove the sandal of the one who's about to be revealed. He will be, we will be more effective witnesses if we will just get over ourselves. So that's a, a tip for the day. Happy tip for the day. Verse 28 says, These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. If you see later on Bethany, this is not the same Bethany where uh, uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha live. It's a different Bethany. It's across the Jordan, and it's in the wilderness where John's baptizing. So that's just that. Not a big deal there. But in verse 29, the next day, okay, so now this is day two. John, will, the author, explicitly is showing what happens the first week of Jesus' ministry, so day two of his ministry. Uh, now probably these leaders are gone, and he's, he sees Jesus coming toward him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now you might think he would say, Here's the Messiah, the King. Here's the guy I've been waiting to tell you about. Here he is, this great, awesome Messiah. And instead, he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who would ever think of that? I mean, so why does John call him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Where did he get that from? Well, one way to ask this question is, what does he mean by calling him? What does he mean by calling him by this title? Because the author, John, makes it clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb. So he, has, he talks a lot about Passover throughout the Gospel. And later on, Jesus is crucified on the Passover. And Exodus 12 is where you read about the Passover, where uh, God said, take a lamb, slay it, put the blood on the doorpost, and you will not be killed. So 
Just follow those instructions by the destroyer who's going to come through. So that's in those days. And one of the, one of the requirements of the lamb was don't break any of its bones. Well, while Jesus was on the cross, he died, and uh, the Roman soldiers came around to break bones because that would shorten the death process. When he came up to Jesus, Jesus was already dead. And John, the author, says this was to fulfill what was said in the instructions about preparing the, the lamb. Not a bone of his will be broken. Not a prophecy, but it was just fulfilling that thing that God had them do. Make sure you don't break any bones. Jesus fulfilled that. So he's the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the sin of Israel. The Passover lamb was to be without blemish, to be acceptable sacrifice, whose blood would cover Israelites and protect them from God's judgment. In order for Jesus to be able to take away sins, he had to be sinless. So he's the only one who can meet that qualification ever. So here he is, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You can't imagine hearing that. I mean, here people are following John. They're all excited about what John's doing. And then he says, here's this guy who takes away the sin of the world, not just Israel. And he's the Lamb of God. There is no other Lamb of God who can do this. He's the only Lamb of God. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So there's another way I want to ask why John calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Since he knows he's identifying Jesus as the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah who is foretold in Scripture, where did he get that in the Bible? Where did he see that in the Bible that he would say, he would know right up, right off top, here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How would he know that? How, how did he see that in Scripture? Well, we're not told, but one verse, passage, maybe Isaiah 53, 7 in particular. In Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So in addition, there's the account of God asking Abraham to sacrifice the son God had promised, Isaac, how God provided a substitute for Isaac. So Isaac is, they're on their way up the mountain. God has told Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, the son whom you love. And Abraham is, hey, this is crazy, but I trust God. He, he hadn't told Isaac yet the whole story. So they're going up the hill, and Isaac says, hey, Dad, uh, we got fire, we got sticks, but where's the lamb? He says, God will provide for himself a lamb. So you see it that in Genesis 22, 8. And then Genesis twenty two thirteen, Abraham's getting ready to put the knife in his son, Isaac, and he looks and sees behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram, offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. That is, those words instead of, is the substitute for Isaac. So these are some of the patterns that were there in the Old Testament. If you think, well, how could you have seen it that? Uh, gotten from there that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How could he have gotten that? Well, you'll see later on, to the ne- next week, that the disciples say, hey, we found the Messiah. We found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. So even though they didn't often get it, they knew that Moses and the prophets wrote about Jesus. And these are some of the, these are some of the uh, threads you can read through the Old Testament to get there. And Jesus later on said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. 
after he wrote of me. So again and again, you'll see in the New Testament the way they go back and see it in the Old, especially after the Holy Spirit came and opened their eyes to understand these things. But John the baptizer somehow got it at that point. So after this astounding announcement that John made that this Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he makes another startling claim. He says in verse 30, There's a man coming after me who ranks before me because he was before me. What do you mean by that? Well, he existed before me. Really? Yeah, John affirms Jesus' preeminence because of his preexistence. That's why the author John, in verse 14, when he said, the word of God, so the word of God, the word became flesh. So here's the word. He said the word was God. The word was with God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. And then in verse 15, after that, he said, John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He's making sure we get, this is what John meant. John knew what he was talking about. He knew that Jesus was God. He knew that Jesus came before him. Even if he struggled with that later, at the time, he, he really got it. So John had amazing insight into who Jesus is, and you can't imagine what the people were thinking when they heard him saying these things. No mistake, John knew Jesus was before him, and that he was at least knew came before him, if not God himself. And then in verse 31, he says, I didn't know that Jesus of Nazareth was, was the Messiah. So he was Jesus' cousin. He knew Jesus. He doesn't mean he never knew Jesus, but he never knew he was the Messiah until this thing that God gave him uh, showed him Jesus himself was the Messiah. He said, this is the reason I came baptizing in water, to reveal him to Israel. That's why I came baptizing, to reveal him to Israel. So how did baptizing in water reveal him as Jesus as the Messiah, John? Well, I'll tell you, he says. John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remained on him. So John, the author, assumes his readers already know the other accounts of Jesus being baptized by John. It's interesting that John, when he wrote his gospel, by this time assumed people already knew that were things that were in the other gospels. <clears throat> And when Jesus came to be baptized, John said, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? And Jesus said, let it be so for now, for this way is fitting for all righteousness. Jesus, who is perfectly righteous, is identifying with the sinful people. And so he's saying this is the, this is the way to be fitting with all righteousness. So when John the baptizer was baptizing Jesus, he sees the Spirit come down from heaven in a dove-like form, and it remains on Jesus. John the baptizer didn't figure out or assume that meaning on his own, but God, the one who sent him, and sent is a very big, important thing in this. John is sent to do these things by God. He didn't, he didn't sign up himself. He didn't send himself. He didn't just volunteer. He said God sent him, told him that the one on whom he would see the Spirit descend and remain would be the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This was one way of describing the Messiah, since there were many texts in the Old Testament that described the Messiah as the one who would be anointed by the Spirit and who would serve in the power of the Spirit. So the people of Israel knew there was a time, an age of the Spirit coming. There were so many texts in Scripture that said the Spirit's going to come, going to renew the earth, going to renew people. He's going to make everything new. They had that down. <clears throat> so there are three verses in Isaiah. I'll just kind of flip through them. We're not going to spend any time other than just so you can see at least three verses in Isaiah where he talks about the Messiah. Verse 11, 2 of Isaiah, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
or 42.1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. Or 61.1, Isaiah, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he, the Lord has anointed me, anointed me, it's that word, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So what does it mean to say that the Messiah will baptize with the Holy Spirit? What does it mean he's going to do? Well, it's not referring to any one thing he does. He just constantly does all he does in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, whether it's, so the word baptize simply means to immerse. So everything he did was putting people in the Spirit, under the influence of the Spirit, immersing everything he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. So all of Christ's work, whether in saving by creating new spiritual life by the Spirit, or in uh, making us become more like him, sanctifying us by the Spirit, making us, making us more holy, like the Holy Spirit, or empowering for ministry by the Spirit, healing or raising people from the dead by the Spirit. He does all of that in the power of the Spirit. So that's why the Spirit came on Jesus at his baptism, and that's when he officially started, was the anointing of him to do his messianic work by the Spirit. John the Baptist baptizer recognizes that, and and so when he sees Jesus after that, so obviously in here, in when he sees Jesus coming, he's already baptized him. He already knew he was the Messiah. That's why in verse 31, he says what he says. In verse 32. Just as John was sent to point people to Jesus, so we are sent. Ah, okay, we are sent. Jesus says to his disciples in chapter 20, verses 21 to 22, he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In the same way that the Father sent Jesus, he sends us. In the same way. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, that may have been just an anticipatory, uh, symbolic act that would actually happen on the day of Pentecost. Certainly, this was not the same as the day of Pentecost. Pentecost, the Spirit came and it was a, and it was a big very obvious tongues of fire speaking in other languages that they didn't know but every Christian is sent by Christ with the spirit to bear witness to him so you're a sent people you're sent in fact Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes on you you will be my witnesses not just you will witness but you will be my witness That's, it's your identity it's who you are you're a sent people that's that's your very nature. If you don't live as a sent people, you're not living according to your identity. The Holy Spirit loves to make Jesus known. So whenever you call attention to Jesus, whenever you make much of Jesus, whenever you praise Jesus, whenever you talk much about him with others, the Holy Spirit is, oh, yeah, I hear. I'm there. I'm there. I'm making it happen. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to make this more than just words. I'm going to make it effective. John the Baptizer is a great model for witness because he is not calling attention to himself. He is declaring the greatness of Christ. So can you do that? Can you talk about how great Jesus is, or is that weird? People say, that's weird. I never heard that come out of your mouth before. Well, you've got to start somewhere, so open your mouth and say how great Jesus is. Good place to start, isn't it? So how might you do that? Well, pray in the Spirit that God, by his Spirit, will give you gospel opportunities. What is a gospel opportunity? It's an opportunity to share the gospel. Isn't that amazing? It's by that I mean pray you would see where there are issues of brokenness, issues of redemption, issues of truth or falsehood, 
or sin or current events that need more of an answer than just, who knows, random things happen that you can make connections to Jesus with. And since we're in John's gospel and he's pouring in all this amazing truth about Jesus being God and his glory, seeing his glory full of grace and truth, all these amazing truths that Jesus created everything and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the one who takes away the sin of the world. All these great truths about Jesus. Just soak your head. I'll go soak your head in it. Saturate your head, your heart with these truths so that actually might start coming out when people bump into you. Be filled with truth about how great Jesus is. So like John, he just can't not say how great Jesus is. He's overflowing to speak of him when you have a gospel opportunity. And in verse 34, he says, I've seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. God has shown him, John the baptizer, that Jesus is the Son of God, which means he is one with the Father, equal but not identical with the Father. Some of your Bibles say he's the chosen one, and both are true, Son of God and chosen one of God. Both of these are true. But I think the original reading there is probably the Son of God. Uh, others heard in other Gospels that he's God's chosen, so they, some of the manuscripts say chosen one. But I think John is all about showing to Jesus the Son of God. As we see in verse 20, chapter 20, verse 31, chapter 20, verse 31 of John, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is what John's after. We may believe Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's incredible truth. By believing Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, we get life in his name. It's really that simple and it's really that hard, that powerful, and really that clear. You need to know you need to be saved if you're going to believe in him as Savior. So we need the Spirit to show that to us. So John, the author, has presented us the witness of John the baptizer to confirm four great truths as to who Jesus is. So what kind of Savior do we need in order for us to have eternal life? And who do you tell people Jesus is? Well, Jesus is the sinless lamb, Passover lamb, who removes the sin of the world. So if you have sins, and you do, and you need removing, Jesus is your guy. He sacrificed himself for that end. Jesus existed before creation because he is God and he created everything that there is. Thirdly, he's the one who gives new spiritual life by the Spirit, sanctifies, makes you more like him by the Spirit, empowers you by the Spirit, heals, raises from the dead by the Spirit. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment by the Spirit. So if you didn't know you had sin that needed forgiving and righteousness that was only available through him and that you needed to avoid God's judgment, the Spirit will show that to you. So Jesus is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Sinless lamb, removed sin, existed before creation, created everything. One who baptizes in the Spirit, and fourthly, he is the Son of God who shares the very nature of the triune God with Father and Holy Spirit. There's only one God, and that one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no other kind of God except God who is three one God, three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So what did I just say? The main idea, here's the message. Main idea, God sends witnesses. That's us. 
So people may receive Jesus as the one who takes away sin and saves by the Spirit. We're going to celebrate that as we take the communion together. We have three stations, one here, two over here. And there's going to be some gentlemen who are going to be serving you and and speaking words of grace and truth to you as you take the elements. You can take them right there when, when you come up, or you can take them back to your seat and continue to seek how Jesus wants you to know him more. He invites you into this meal if you know him. If you've never received Jesus as Son of God or Messiah, you've never understood you need, that only through him you can have sins forgiven, only through him you have life, then this meal wouldn't mean anything for you because that's what this meal represents. This meal represents his body and his blood, that only through Christ coming in the flesh, God in the human flesh, living the perfect life for us, being the, the God-man for us, who alone could save us, his body, and alone could shed his blood as the Passover lamb on the cross for us. That's what this meal represents, and we're saying, yes, we believe that. This is why I have hope for eternal life. Every time we take this meal, we proclaim his death till he comes. If you don't believe that yet, then uh, when you do believe it, come take it. But it won't mean anything to you if you don't yet believe that. So we're going to pray, prepare ourselves to receive this meal. Father, your son, Jesus, the lamb, the one who gives us the Holy Spirit, taught us to pray to you as father. And so as our heavenly father, we come to you and say, we need your son, Jesus. Only in him we have life. Thank you for showing that to us through your spirit. Your, the conspiracy of the Trinity, you ganged up on us. By your spirit, you showed us we needed to be saved by Jesus. You revealed Jesus to us. You sent him. He came and died and rose again for us. So in doing that, you gave us the right to become your children. It's not something we could ever have by any human natural ways or any religious anything other than being birthed into new life through the life of your son, Jesus, that you give to us through through your spirit. So we thank you, Father. As we take this meal together, we recognize that the only way that this meal has meaning for us is because we know that we had sin, that we could never live for in eternity with you, and because Christ has become a righteousness and because he's given us life, we have the right to be your children, to live with you forever. He is the coming one who we look forward to his final coming. Thank you for giving us a such a bold witness as John the baptizer who who was a voice who said prepare the way of the Lord so father we prepare to receive more truth about Christ and to consider his greatness as we take this meal together we pray these things in his great name